This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We are turning again to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We've been slowly working our way through this letter. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And what I do love about kind of working through a whole book of Scripture together is that we pick up passages that we normally wouldn't choose as a favorite passage, that if you had it and you're more devotional, you might not necessarily feel really fed that day. But if we kind of toil away at it, we'll see that God has something really helpful to speak to us today. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The words are on the screen, and if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open that and follow along over the next 30 or 40 minutes. Let's listen to the Word of God. Paul writes, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who, are, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I don't want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say, oh, his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we'd not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the Word of God. And if you've been following along through the series, you'll sense a sharp change of tone as we go into these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. Paul turns to an impassioned defense of his ministry as an apostle of Jesus. 
It turns out in this church of Corinth, which Paul had planted and established and prayed and wept and toiled over, outsiders, interlopers have appeared, taken advantage of Paul's absence in cities far away to kind of build up their own ministry and to take over the church for themselves. And these newcomers are powerful, eloquent, charismatic. They are real leaders. Just the kind of person any Corinthians neighbor or unbelieving spouse would be impressed by that you'd want to show them off to those in your community. But these are actually parasites who are devouring the church from within and seducing the Corinthians away from the gospel of Jesus to their destruction. So we really shouldn't read these chapters as Paul just being personally offended and angry that his own rights and status is being violated, that he's being disrespected. Paul is afraid that if his spiritual children reject their father in the faith, they're going to wander away from Jesus himself. And for their sake and for the sake of the gospel, Paul must defend himself. 2 Corinthians 10 is a chapter about authority in the church. Where does authority come from? Who gets to wield authority? What is it used for? I want to submit to you that even though Paul's personal struggles in Corinth may seem a long way away, the question of authority is deeply relevant to all of us today. Your Christian life, as you follow Jesus, is going to be profoundly shaped by the kind of people that you submit to. And if you are following people who love Jesus and honor him and are themselves submitted to his lordship, you will grow and you will prosper and you will be close to Jesus yourself. But it's very likely that following the wrong kind of leader, people who exercise authority in a fleshly, worldly way, in the end, that will very likely leave you deceived, betrayed, abused, and quite possibly destroy your faith entirely. And I don't think I'm the only person here who's endured bad, abusive leadership and retrospect and can testify to how damaging that is. So it's very important for us as disciples that we learn to recognize the voice of the Good Shepherd, to recognize his voice as it is spoken by his true and faithful under-shepherds, and to run from those who are wolves in disguise. All of us in this church, without exception, are under authority. And all of us in our lives are under different kinds of authorities. And probably most of us will have to exercise authority ourselves in big or small ways in our lives. It could be as a pastor, as an elder, as a ministry leader in the church. It could be as a, a manager at your job. It could be as a mother or a father in your own family. We all need to learn how to use authority ourselves to honor Jesus and to build up other people. And perhaps it is fortuitous that it's Father's Day today in many of our home countries. Um, and you know, as fathers, we're called to be strong, benevolent co-rulers of our little kingdom, exercising authority not for ourselves, but for the blessing 
of our little citizens. And 2 Corinthians 10 has a lot to teach us all about both exercising authority and submitting to authority. You know, as I kind of soaked in this chapter, I was struck by how centered on Jesus these 18 verses are. And if you scan through it again, you'll notice how often Paul turns back and mentions Christ or the Lord. So I've got five points today, five theses about authority that I want to kind of center around Jesus to see how Paul shapes all his thinking and teaching about authority around Christ himself. True authority, number one, reflects the gentleness of Jesus. In verse 1, Paul appeals to the Corinthians by the humility and gentleness of Christ. And the very first lesson about authority that we must learn is that authority is based, true authority is based in sharing the character of Jesus. The Savior who says to us all, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Jesus who promises a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not quench. The Jesus who resisted the satanic temptation to seize worldly power and to use it to crush, oppress, dominate, and control other people. Christ was gentle, he was kind, he was humble, he was lowly, and he wept with compassion at those who were oppressed by sin, by Satan, and by death. And therefore, any pastor, any leader who does not reflect the humility and gentleness of Jesus is a false shepherd, and you should run from that person as far and as fast as you can. Because they're exercising authority shaped by the world and not by the crucified Redeemer. You know, back in around 2005 or so, I think, Walter Isaacson came out with his biography of Steve Jobs, the late CEO of Apple. I don't know if any of you read that biography. And Jobs, of course, was a brilliant genius. He was a visionary leader. He was also someone who frequently screamed at, belittled, and humiliated his employees. And what should have been read as a cautionary tale, as a warning, in many churches that biography seems to have been read as a model for effective leadership, at getting things done, at pursuing excellence. And that is not the way of Jesus. Let me offer you a few warning signs about dangerous fleshly wielding of authority in the church. If your church has a giant billboard beside the freeway with your pastor's face on it, run as fast as you can. If your pastor's sneakers cost more than your car, run or drive as fast as you can. If your pastor has a green room behind the stage and he's constantly surrounded by bodyguards, run as fast as you can. 
If your church has a corded off reserved area for celebrities, run as fast as you can. If in your church scandals and evil is being hushed up to protect the reputation of leaders, run as fast as you can. And if you're under a pastor or a leader of any kind who feels threatened when people raise questions or challenge his authority or gaslights people who question him, run as fast as you can because that is not the voice of the good shepherd. That is satanic. It's easy for us to blame bad leaders, but as disciples of Jesus, all of us, without exception, have a responsibility to place ourselves under good, humble, kind, Jesus-shaped leaders and run from bad shepherds as fast and as far as we can. I want to urge you, if you love Jesus and you want to become like him, follow people who love Jesus and are acting like him themselves in humility and gentleness. Now, don't mistake the humility and gentleness of Jesus for timidity, cowardice, and weakness. Because in the Gospels, we see Jesus fearlessly rebuking the Pharisees, turning over tables in the temple, and defending the cause of the oppressed. And Paul knows that there is a time to boldly assert the authority of Jesus. Paul is humble and kind, but he's no coward. And he, of course, Paul prefers to appeal, to plead, to reason with his spiritual children, just like any good mother or father does. But you know, there's a time as a parent when your kids start getting out of control and you're, say, waiting for the metro and they're horsing around right near the tracks. You need to loudly and firmly assert your authority and even grab them roughly by the arm and yank them back from danger. Because you love your kids, you exercise your authority to protect them. And that's what Paul's doing in this chapter. His appeal to Christ's gentleness and humility is immediately followed by a declaration of war. This church that Paul loves and that he sacrificed so much for is in danger and it's been taken captive effectively by false teachers, by bad people, by imposters claiming to have the mantle of apostles of Christ. And these are men and women who've been attracted to apostolic status and power and glory, but really have no interest in apostolic endurance and sacrifice and suffering. And these interlopers have taken advantage of Paul's absence to worm their way into the church of Corinth. You know, like the, they're like those horrific parasites you might have seen in nature shows that like somehow get into a frog, climb into a frog's eye or into its digestive system, and they burr their way into the brain and start controlling the animal somehow and begin to lay eggs inside the brain of this poor little creature and start devouring the animal from the inside. And those of you who are a bit of a nervous temperament might be imagining this happening inside your own brain as I speak. What a horrible thing. And that's kind of what's happening within this church. These parasites who have birthed their way into people's minds and are feeding on them. 
And these false leaders have built up mental strongholds within the congregation. Based on widely accepted ideas about power and status and honor and success. They've gotten into people's minds. And at every weekly meeting, every Sunday when the church gathers in these households, they're laying this foundation, they're building up this power, this conviction that, you know, Paul, he means well, but he's just too human, he's too ordinary, he's too weak, too unimpressive, really, to be a real apostle. And the most dangerous thing of all is that in Corinth, the gospel itself is being twisted and modified to fit into worldly expectations of power. And the spirit of Jesus himself has become something that people can leverage to climb the social ladder. And as a general of King Jesus, Paul's task now is to lay siege to these fortresses, which are really prisons from which the Corinthians need to be liberated. Yeah, Paul is just an ordinary guy living an ordinary human life. That's what the false apostles find so offensive about him. But he's waging this warfare for the minds of the church with supernatural weapons that have divine power to tear down these strongholds. What are those weapons? And Paul doesn't say in so many words in this chapter, but if you flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10, Paul talks about bearing weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. And he goes on to talk about going through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters ourselves, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and possessing everything. Paul's weapon is paradoxically sheathed in weakness. Paul's weapon is the word of the cross. The word, the message that Paul proclaims, but that he also embodies in his own life as he himself shares in the suffering of Jesus. And somehow, by the Spirit, Paul has confidence that when he proclaims and when he lives out this weak word of the cross in Corinth, that somehow by the miraculous power of God, these Corinthians who have been made new creations by this word are going to be liberated from this false and deadly thinking that has imprisoned them. And Paul's aim is to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, verse 5. So my second point is this. True authority champions Christ's lordship. True authority champions Christ's lordships. Paul's not trying to build up his own lordship and his own supremacy over people. He's building the empire of Jesus. He's not trying to collect as many people as he can to follow him and to become disciples of Paul. He's going to the nations to make disciples of everybody, to teach them, teach them to obey everything that Christ commanded. 
And so here, taking every thought captive does not mean, you know, guarding your mind from lust or from bitterness. Paul's not talking about worldview and apologetics primarily. It's about allowing every assumption about life to be shaped by Jesus. Especially your assumptions about power and success. Allowing that to be shaped by who Jesus is and what he's calling us to do. And so when we sang a few moments ago about power in the name of Jesus, and we sang that every high thing must come down and every stronghold must be broken, we're offering ourselves to Jesus to allow him to conform us to his image. All of our minds have been profoundly shaped by our cultures. And we all come from different cultures with different assumptions about what power and success and glory means, but they've all been shaped by humanity in rebellion against God. And our challenge is to submit ourselves to the spirit of Jesus and ask him, show us what it means to follow a suffering and crucified Messiah. Show me what that means in my own life and help me to hear and to obey the voice of the one who turns and says to me and to you, take up your cross and follow me, or you cannot be my disciple. The Lordship of Jesus. And every true leader must use their authority to champion, to champion the lordship of Christ over those he or she leads, or it's not true authority. Thirdly, true authority honors Christ's mandate. True authority honors Christ's mandate, and by that I mean we must all recognize that authority is distributed by Christ who is the head. As Paul says in verse 8, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Authority is not generated from within ourselves. It's delegated by King Jesus. He's in charge, and he puts people in charge over us under his own authority. Remember, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he announced that all authority had been given to him. The scepter is in the hands of Jesus. And then he gives the church gifts, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he appeared specifically to Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to command the obedience of the nations. So therefore, if Paul just walked away from Corinth, if he failed to defend his apostleship, he would be betraying the commission that Jesus gave him. Unlike the false apostles, Paul has not appointed himself. He's not placed the crown on his own head. He knows that Jesus has called him to this task, and therefore he's not going to be ashamed or embarrassed about that authority. Paul speaks humbly but confidently in the name of the king. 
I speak in the name of the king. And anyone who's been given that authority to speak in the name of King Jesus must be very careful what comes out of their mouth. No pastor, no elder, no ministry leader has authority to speak their own ideas and their own opinions and their own desires. We speak for Jesus. We exercise the authority that he gave for building up and not for tearing down the church, Paul says. So there's the difference between healthy and abusive authority right there. Christ-like leadership is not exercised for the benefit of the leader, but for the benefit of the lead. So as I think about myself as a father, very easy for me to get angry and irritated at my children and to punish them hard when they make my life uncomfortable as they occasionally do. But that's being selfish and, in fact, abusive. And as a father, I need to repent and ask their forgiveness for using my authority to benefit myself. My authority is actually a burden of responsibility that Christ has placed on me as he's placed on my wife to serve our children. And we will be held accountable by Jesus for whether we used our authority to bless them or to bless ourselves. Authority is given to build them up, to train them in the discipline of the Lord, to help them come to a living relationship with Jesus, and to be healthy and happy and prosperous and successful and good human beings. And of course, that applies not just to parenting, but to authority wherever it is exercised. And for Paul, all this personal building up has a larger purpose, and that is the wider cause of the gospel in the world. Jumping ahead to verses 15 and 16, he writes, our hope is that as your faith continues to grow in Corinth, as these people are built up, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. The church in Corinth is not the terminus station of Paul's ministry. He's been called by Jesus to a much wider mission beyond Corinth to plant churches throughout the Gentile world. And his ambition is to go on to Rome and to Spain and to regions far beyond to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul wants to build up the church in Corinth. He wants to put it on a strong foundation with good, godly leaders so that he can be freed up for more pioneer church planting, perhaps even using Corinth as a base and a jumping-off point for more mission. And so the stakes are high for Paul, because if Corinth is lost to the false apostles, this wider mission to the nations is going to be jeopardized, and Paul can't allow that to happen. True authority, fourthly, serves Christ's mission. True authority serves Christ's mission. It's not about building up a nice ministry empire, whether it's a big one or a small one. It's about participating in Jesus' heart for the nations. And really, by comparison, Paul's rivals in Corinth are 
petty and small-minded. They've shown up to steal the sheep, but they haven't taken the pioneering risks. They haven't fathered men and women in the faith like Paul had, which is the seal of his ministry. People actually coming to Jesus and being built up in him. And these false apostles, yes, they've boasted of their, their abilities, their powerful rhetorical gifts, their impressive spiritual experiences. And to them, Paul is painfully ordinary, and they had nearly convinced the Corinthian church that he was an embarrassing liability they should really just let go. But for Paul, the only proof of his apostolic authority is the church itself. The only letter of recommendation Paul needs is the very evident work of the Holy Spirit in these men and women and children in this church who've responded in faith to the word of the cross and have formed a new family of God together. That's what Jesus has called Paul to do. That is Paul's lane, and he's sticking to his lane. He knows what Jesus has asked of him. He's not going to go beyond that, interfering in other people's work. He knows what Jesus has called him to do. And within those boundaries, Paul is very confident of his authority. It's a good reminder to all of us who are tempted to stick our heads over the fence into our neighbor's work for the kingdom and to interfere and to criticize and tell them what they're doing wrong and how they could be doing it better, to run our own little discernment ministry and tear other people down and neglect our own work that Jesus has called us to do. What do you know? What do you know that Jesus has called you to do? What is your sphere of ministry? Doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be impressive, but what relationships, what opportunities, what calling has God given you? And are you being faithful to Jesus within that area? You might have been given only a very small measure of authority but are you faithfully using it in service to Jesus? And if you have completely fulfilled that, fine. Go and interfere with other people, but not until you've completed the task that God has given you. Which leads me to my final point today. True authority seeks Christ's approval. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says, But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, quoting Jeremiah 9. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. You know, Paul cares very little for how other people judge him. All this garbage is being posted online about him. He doesn't care about that stuff. He doesn't even dare to judge himself. The only opinion that matters for Paul is the opinion of the Lord Jesus. What will Christ say to me? And Paul's overriding ambition, what drives everything, is standing before Jesus on the day of judgment and to receive praise from his master. Well done, good and faithful 
servant. Everything in Paul's life is about hearing that sentence from the lips of Jesus. You know, Paul is so aware of his weakness, his frailty, his failures, his disappointments. He knows that if he's achieved anything in his life and his ministry, it can only be through the grace and power of God. And when he boasts, as Paul will do frequently throughout the succeeding chapters, he's not bragging as though he produced this life of himself. He's praising the God who puts such treasure into a clay jar. And the only praise that Paul wants for himself is the commendation that comes from his risen master. And one day, brothers and sisters, we will all be standing before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives, for our ministries, including how we exercised and how we submitted to Christ's authority. And on that day, there will be no more precious possession than a good conscience before the Lord. To be standing in line, waiting for our turn to make a report, to reflect back on our lives and to know, I was a faithful steward of Christ's authority. I used it to honor him. I used it to build up his people. I used it to serve his kingdom. But when the Spirit made me aware that I was falling short and abusing my authority or neglecting my authority, I repented and I changed. And it will be good to know as we stand in line, that we have submitted to Christ's authority wherever we found it, that we submitted faithfully to those the Good Shepherd placed over us for our good, for our blessing, for our protection, to know that we received their guidance and taken every thought captive to the Lordship of Jesus. It will be a good thing to have a clear conscience as we stand before Jesus and await his word of praise. Let's bow our heads and pray now that God would grant his Holy Spirit so that we can actually do that on that day. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your authority, for your fatherhood from which every fatherhood on earth is derived. We thank you that you are a God who uses your authority not to crush and oppress and destroy, but to bless to build up, to affirm, to nourish, to protect, and to love. And we thank you for the voice of your Son, the Good Shepherd, for the voice of his Spirit in our midst. Lord, help us to submit to and to exercise your authority with humility, with gentleness, with love all for the glory and for the praise of Jesus, in whose great name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.